0: Do you know anything about the artist at all? Um, Just what I was reading on my phone while we were standing in line.
1: (laughs) Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Okay, imagine, if you will... That somewhere in a remote Japanese asylum, a brilliant artist in a neon pink wig and a suit of polka dots has been masterminding a plot to send mesmerizing contraptions out into the world that, in part by playing to people's vanity, lure giant obedient crowds in cities on every continent. Now imagine that this artist has also constructed an intricate network of intermediaries who then sell polka-dotted objects to these mesmerized people, sending millions of dollars back to the artist from around the globe. The artist's ultimate plot? No less than total domination of the art world. This may sound like the plot from a campy old Batman episode, but is actually a more or less literal description of the sensational career of the 90-year-old artist Yayoi Kusama one of the most famous artists in the world, whose infinity room installations draw round-the-block lines wherever they appear and whose artworks have sold for as much as $8 million at auction. Right now, as a matter of fact, a new show of her work at the David Zwirner Gallery in New York's Chelsea Art District has proven her popularity yet again, attracting mobs of fans willing to wait a 90-minute lines for the chance to stand inside one of Kusama's infinity rooms for one glorious minute and hopefully snap a selfie or two in the process. But while the artist's outsides fame and colorful public persona can sometimes abstract her into something like a cartoon character, her actual life is far more complicated, more interesting, and much darker. An intensely troubled soul, she has been voluntarily living in Japan's Siwa Hospital for the Mentally Ill since the 1970s, making rare public appearances and instead focusing with extraordinary intensity on her work. Hers is a remarkable story, and it makes her status as the universal heroine of today's art-besotted millennials something of a small miracle. So why, exactly, is she so popular, and what is an infinity room anyway? Today, I'm joined by Artnet News chief art critic Ben Davis to discuss this unusual artist. Good to be back, Andrew. So, Ben, you just got back from waiting in line for 90 minutes to experience Kusama's infinity room at David Zwerner, which I, you know, I have to say it gives a new definition to online art journalism. What was the scene like there? Well, the line is really a part of the experience at this point, And that's why
0: I wanted to go to get the full Kusama infinity room experience. You know, the website, if you go to it now, will not only contain a countdown clock telling you exactly how many minutes are left in the run of this show, but will direct you to their Twitter feed, which tells you exactly how many minutes you might have to wait in order to get in. So I showed up at about 11 o'clock, The estimated wait time was about 90 minutes, which proved to be pretty accurate, I have to say. And I was waited there in the cold with several hundred other um, art fans. What was the spirit or the feeling like of the line? Well, it's not a party. I mean, it's a long line that you are enduring, but there is a kind of a sense of community. And I do think that... The crowds around it making visible that you're part of a popular collective phenomenon is part
1: of this work at this point. So before going to the show today, what has your experience been like with Kusama's Infinity Rooms?
0: Well, I actually went to see this very room, which is called Infinity Mirrored Room, dancing lights that flew up to the universe already. This is my second time in the room. I went to the press preview. I got right in to have my minute in the box. And I just really wanted to be part of the experience of waiting on the street in the crowds. I think that's a different thing, and I think you really can't judge it without that sense of anticipation, that Hmm. sense of being right, of talking to other people about what they're expecting, the
1: sense of reward you get from having stuck it out. It's funny, it kind of reminds me that Back in the ancient world, they used to put temples on top of hilltops because it would make the progression of the people from the town up to the temple that much more dramatic.
0: Kusama has just at times described herself as the high priestess of a kind of occult or the high priestess of her art. She has a long history of orchestrating kinds of spectacles, and this is a kind of remote version of that, that through these exciting environments, she creates a kind of collective experience for people that from her distant perch, she presides
1: over. So I'm personally very curious. What was it like to be inside this infinity room?
0: Well, I think that you have this experience of waiting and then this extremely quick time within the environment. So they're allowing people in four at a time and for exactly one minute. And even when I got to the front of the line, the attendants there at the gallery were sort of addressing the audience and saying, you chose to do this to yourself, <laughs> don't blame us. You waited in the line. We're going in four at a time because we want the most number of people to experience it. And I wanted our listeners to get the experience of the duration of it. So I actually recorded myself inside the installation So let's take a listen to that now. And they are letting me in to the box. Here we go. Shutting the door behind me. And now I'm in total darkness. There are lights around me. that are flickering softly, sort of at knee level, now at eye level. And now we've got a sort of... Totally illuminated room. It's it's smaller than you think. It's about the size of a large office. There are mirrors on all the walls, and these sort of soft icy white lights. Kind of now they've now they've turned and turned red from white. So you're in a kind of a field of red stars, and now it's dark again. So I'm completely back into darkness. I feel like the cycle is starting over again. just see in the darkness my reflection in the center of the room mirrored away from me infinitely and surrounded in a sort of halo of light. Now we're back to full cool white light and the door has opened again just as it turns to red and that is the end of my Kusama Infinity Room experience.
1: did you take a selfie?
0: I did manage to take a selfie of myself. I, <laughs> I wouldn't have waited that long without
1: getting the goods. And did you post it on Instagram? <laughs> no, I, I've, yet to, I've yet to immerse myself in the experience that much. So these infinity rooms are not new. They've been around for a long time. Why are they so popular now? And where did this wellspring of popularity come from?
0: Kusama had her moment in the 60s, then had a big comeback in the new millennium that has now achieved historic proportions that's put her in a league all of her own. And this has really come alongside a development of the Infinity Rooms. I think in 2002, Fireflies in the Water was the first environment that incorporated this this kind of sacred Holy, darkened atmosphere. Then Dot's Obsession, which is in 2007, she introduced LED lights. Again, all all moving towards this sacred, ethereal quality that you get inside of them. And a lot of people talk about her art at this point as Instagram art. Clearly, social media is driving a lot of the interest in her work. She's just become, at this point, a pop culture phenomenon as much as an art phenomenon. The tickets to see her shows sell out really quick, like within a matter of
1: minutes when they're opened up to the public. So for a long time, Kusama was not immediately associated in the public mind with Infinity Rooms. In fact, she was synonymous with polka dots. She was probably most visible in the public eye for a long time because of her collaboration that she did with the designer Mark Jacobs, on a line of clothing and handbags that were covered in her signature polka dots. So tell me, what is it that connects those polka dots with these infinity rooms, and where do they come from in the first place?
0: Well, I've heard Kusama say different things about what polka dots symbolize. I mean, at times she's talked about the polka dots is symbolizing the sun, which is masculine, but also the moon, which is feminine. So bringing together those energies. I've also heard her say that polka dots symbolize disease, but they are definitely connected to her origin story, so to speak. She has a traumatic childhood and these experiences of what she calls desubjectification, of kind of melting into her environment. And the polka dots are both a way of obscuring the visual field and of also taking control of it. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, I find it ironic that her entire origin is about psychic distress and the, this need for control in the face of trauma. And then it's been turned into these sort of playful entertainment experiences or um, luxury status signifiers.
1: You mentioned that Kusama endured a period of trauma in her life. And this is actually key to understanding her work because it's a wellspring of a lot of the themes and series that she explored over the years. Could you tell me a little bit in brief about the trauma that she experienced as a child?
0: Yeah, and I should say this is part of her explicit biography. You know, it's not like airing dirty laundry, but she was born into a very wealthy family, but a troubled family where her father had to assume the Kusama name, which is not traditional because the mother's family was the wealthy and important one, hmm. and he retaliated by cheating on her mother, who asked her to spy on the father and then supposedly beat Kusama when she came back to report the bad news (laughs) and all her experiences of desubjectification and trauma that she reports are bound up with this. And you could do symbolic readings of her work, the themes of flowers and suns and phallic imagery, polka dots in relationship to all of these experiences. I would say that she's also, you know, a very ambitious person, She's not just a victim of trauma, she's somebody who really deliberately chose to create herself. Her story is that her mother wanted her to assume a traditional identity of a, of a Japanese young woman at that time period, and she decided to claim the artist's identity, and that meant inventing herself. Moving to New York, a society that was foreign to her, and it was not, not an easy time to do that. So. She's not just somebody who is a passive suffering person. She's someone who's full of ambition and has a story of really fighting hard to realize herself and taking the symbols that come out of her experience of trying to cope with these experiences of displacement and making art about them Hmm. that demands to be seen and that she demands is seen
1: when you talk about her self-determination and her creation of her own persona, it's interesting that there's this idea of people going to Kusama Infinity Rooms and taking a selfie and this being some kind of millennial craze. But it was actually pioneered, in a sense, by the artist herself, who for years has had herself photographed in her bright wig and her polka dot outfits in front of her work oh, yeah, as a way of a kind of asserting her own connection to the work, her creation of the work and her identification with this art that she was making. So what is she doing in these photos? Why is it important for her to have a picture of herself in there? I think this is really important. I mean, I think that there's a way
0: at this point that she's become such a media phenomena and such a celebrity of the Instagram age that People project into it that she's just an Instagram artist at this point. And in some ways, this is true that social media has picked up her mirrored rooms and they've become a new kind of thing but a lot of the energy that people are picking up there is already in the work from the 1960s she considers herself a pop artist you know she's playing on on ideas of celebrity and she's playing on ideas of the commodification of art she has a very famous guerrilla work of art that she takes hmm. to the Venice Biennale in 1966 called Narcissus Garden where she brings all these mirrored balls and actually is selling them in front of the Italian pavilion for $2 a piece. It says, your narcissism for sale. I think that obviously resonates with all kinds of conversations people have today about narcissism and media and photographs herself in a red leotard laying amongst the balls. And there's all kinds of ways that the conversation she's having about identity and media and self-creation and the image as a way to cope with anxiety that she's consciously working with at that time have become newly prescient in the present media age.
1: It's actually almost a, a misunderstanding of these things to think that when people wait in line, they go there and they take a selfie of themselves, that that's kind of like this incidental souvenir, when in fact it's possible that you could look at these rooms as being primarily about seeing oneself in a mirror with all of these flashing lights and kind of alternative, you know, different shapes and floating forms.
0: The very first real mirrored room is called Peep Show from 1966. And you look in and you see yourself... And it's a peep show where you're the star and it's full of flickering lights that are like marquee lights and they're the Beatles or there's rock and roll music playing. So she was thinking about the aesthetic appeal of putting yourself at the center of the image, of the viewer becoming the subject of the image and feeling like they're a celebrity, feeling like they're a rock star really early on. And I would say that an additional interesting point is that part of this is because she was an outsider. You know, she is by all accounts, an extremely ambitious person who wanted to be famous and she wanted to be an art star and she was hungry for media and She was doing all that as a non-native English speaker, as a foreigner, as a woman at a time when those were all huge handicaps for her. And she's very aware of that. And so the kind of hunger that the artwork represents in terms of courting media, really trying to think through how do you hack in to the mainstream media from the outside. Again, I think that's part of what makes it prescient now that we have all these new media tools that really blur the distinction between insiders and outsiders and make it so that new kinds of people are being able to figure themselves as celebrities and, and stars in their own mind to develop their own kind of followings, have new kinds of conversations that decenter the mainstream media narrative, produce new kinds of narratives. That's all right there in the work that she was thinking about in the mid-1960s.
1: It's interesting that you talk about her approach for media hacking because back in the 1960s her polka dots became such a popular sensation because they coincided with the time when polka dots were sweeping the fashion world as this new hip swinging 60s kind of style note. And so all the magazine editors wanted to have photographs of this young Japanese woman in her polka dot environments in their magazines. And then after that started to die down, she actually famously, she had a nervous breakdown. I would say the flip side of that, it's not just the fashion
0: world. She also had a big interface with the counterculture, hippie forms of protest movements, doing these nude protests and teach-ins in protest to the Vietnam War. Her crisis at the beginning of the 70s coincides with this sort of dead end of of 60s Mm protest. All these things come together in her biography and in her work. And I think it's important to look at them all together. The personal, the political, the media, the fashion world. These are all forces that that are flowing through her work. And part of what makes her, again, interesting and newly relevant in the last decade or so is a lot of those same forces are coming together again, mixing up in new kinds of ways.
1: I mean, another force that she's very cognizant of is the art market, because it's not as if Kusama is this disinterested genius toiling in seclusion separate from the real world. In fact, she's intensely interested in the way that her work is operating in this international network of of the art market, Can you tell me a little bit about Kusama's relationship with money in the market? Well, there's a huge Kusama industry now. I mean, she's a
0: very popular artist. Uh, New Infinity Room by Yayoi Kusama is an event. She's collaborated with Louis Vuitton, for, for instance. I don't totally agree with you that she's become totally obsessed with her own market. She is somebody who has always been very passionate about her vision and her work. And I've read accounts of her where, you know, what she really cares about is that she's visible. You know, she's always wanted it to be a Kusama world. And now it kind of is. And I think that's very pleasing to her. But by all accounts, she is mainly consumed with continuing to expand her vision Will she be remembered as an important artist 50 years from now? Yeah, absolutely. For a long time, she was somebody who had a lower profile in art history. Now, I think as the media environment changes, as people discover new kinds of precedents, as the histories that were previously suppressed or overlooked get reconsidered, she's become a a huge inspiration and a draw for people. I don't think that's going away.
1: So today, Kusama is 90 years old. She still makes her rare public appearances, although now she often does so in a polka-dotted wheelchair, which just goes to show her, her zest for this kind of performative public life. But she still lives in the mental institution that she consigned herself to several decades ago. And she's been known to tell journalists, quote... If it were not for art, I would have killed myself a long time ago. What do we know about the circumstances of her life today?
0: Well, I think by most accounts, she continues to live for art. She continues to work every day and continue to push her vision and is uh, more engaged than ever. Something that I think is interesting is this concept of self-obliteration. Mm-hmm. It's always been really important to her work, this sense of wanting to negate the self into the environment. You see that in the polka dots, the way they serve as a device to obliterate space, obliterate the perceptual field and become the environments where the visitor becomes a part of the image. Their self kind of merges with the pattern. And it's really interesting, I have to say, being in the line and talking to people who are there about why they're there. And some of them are huge Kusama fans. I talked to one woman who'd been to see several Kusama environments in Chelsea before, said she'd waited for two hours for one, and at the same time, didn't know a thing about Yayoi Kusama. Said, I don't even know how to pronounce her name. And so there's an interesting way that her art has achieved self-obliteration that has achieved the status of a kind of force of nature, where it's a visual phenomenon that is extremely present and yet in a form that canceled out her own identity in some kind of way, that she has become this phenomenon that has this very interesting rare status where people can be fans of her and the signature energy she unleashes and everything she does, and yet in a way that totally goes around all their traditional art historical interest in biography and subject matter and personal
1: vision. So an interesting example of this transcending celebrity that she's managed to achieve through her work is that while we've got these lines waiting in the cold around the block to go see her infinity rooms in Chelsea right now, a balloon that she's made is going to be debuted in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Yeah. And this apparently is going to give her the biggest audience that she's ever had of at least 23 million people who are going to be simultaneously watching her balloon as it's carried down the parade route. So what is her balloon? What does this thing look like? It's a sun. It's a
0: great mutant sun. It's 34 feet tall and... It's going to be a great spectacle, and it's an interesting thing. Again, it's like a classic Kusama image, and you could talk about it in terms of all kinds of symbols from her oeuvre. You know, you could talk (laughs) about, the has these kind of phallic tendrils that relates to a lot of things she's done. You can talk about how the sun is an inspiration for the polka dot shape and how that has traditionally symbolized for her the fluctuation between the masculine and the feminine or sickness and the ability to overcome it through this kind of claiming of space, through patterns. But really... It's just going to be one big symbol of her status wow. as the ultimate pop culture artist. It's
1: kind of incredible to think that there is this figment of the creative imagination of this highly eccentric Japanese 90-year-old artist that is going to be going into the public perception of all the kids in <laughs> New York yeah, City. Yeah,
0: she's, she's a force of nature and a force in pop culture and what, could be a better symbol of that than a big
1: cartoon sun. So I just got to ask, how do you plan to watch the Kusama blimp in the Macy's parade this week? (laughs) Oh, I'm going to be at home reading. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, that's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. Thank you very much for joining me, Ben. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein and edited by Nick Long. Thanks again for joining and see you again next Tuesday on The Art Angle.